0: Uh, So our summer in the Psalms is done. We are done uh, studying uh, the the book of Psalms in the way that we have, and we're actually beginning on a new series. In this series, uh, I'm not going to say exactly how long it is, uh, but we're going to spend probably the next school year or somewhere around that amount of time studying the Gospels. Over the course of uh, the last year, there has been this kind of uh, restlessness or the sense within uh, kind of our collective staff and leadership to say, man, we want to spend some time with Jesus. Uh, We want to spend some time looking at the life, the person, uh, the ministry of Jesus. And uh, and so we're not going to put, we're not just studying one book, but we're going to actually look at all of the gospels. Uh, or take stories, parables, uh, different miracles from all of the Gospels. And they're going to be kind of in smaller chunks of series. So it will be uh, Jesus and these types of things that happen. And I don't want to give too much away right now, but I'm just trying to prepare you that that's where we're going to be going for uh, the, the foreseeable future. One, uh, th- a book that I read, um, this was a number of years ago, uh, a book that I, I think is, uh, was a really profound book in my life uh, by an author named Rob Belts called Velvet Elvis. And he, at one point, kind of in, in one of these chapters, is talking about the rabbinical system and how uh, you know, younger kids uh, in, in kind of the Jewish culture would come under a, a rabbi and follow that person. And he quotes, and I'm going to totally butcher this name, Yose Ben Yoser, I believe, uh, who is a rabbi himself, and he quotes this guy uh, saying, um, the idea or, or the, um, the way that a disciple was to follow a rabbi was to follow, uh, to get covered with the dust of your rabbi's feet, to be covered with the dust from your rabbi's feet. So this idea of that disciple would follow so closely to that rabbi, that they would be covered with the dust that came from their feet. And that is our heart as we go into this next year. And the rabbi that we will be following will be Jesus. You see, it's one thing to know about Jesus, but I think a completely different thing to actually follow Jesus. Our journey this year will be uh, not one of just study, but really a journey to embody his life, his ministry, his character. We don't want to just fill our minds with information about Jesus, but we actually want to experience transformation as we follow close enough to get his very dust on us. So as we dreamed about how would we kind of orient this whole year beyond just saying we're going to study Jesus, we're going to look at Jesus, we're going to follow Jesus, beyond just looking at that, how would we orient or how would we frame this entire year? The idea that resonated with both uh, Russ and I, with our leadership, with our staff, was the idea of an invitation, which if you read through the ministry of Jesus, if you read through the Gospels, that idea of invitation comes up often. It's throughout, That Jesus is always inviting people. And so, in a sense, this entire year is going to be an invitation. It's going to be an invitation to move closer to Jesus. To take a little closer look at this idea of invitation, you can turn to Luke 14 right now. Luke's in the New Testament, for those of you who didn't know. That's another Bible joke, guys. That was funny. (laughs) Nobody laughed, but that was funny. Trust me. Luke fourteen. As you're turning there, uh, I think before we can actually fully study this parable that we're going to look at this morning, uh, I think you need to understand a little bit of history. And this was all new to me uh, as I studied this passage, uh, but it brings um, it brings a depth to this passage that I didn't really know existed before. So let me give you just a touch of history. Uh, Luke fourteen. Before we actually get to the section we're going to read, uh, Jesus has just performed this miraculous healing on the Sabbath. And Jesus is at the table of a prominent leader, uh, eating with different invited guests. And he begins to instruct them about their need for humility, their need for hospitality, especially their need to kind of uh, invite the have-nots of society into their world, to their homes, to their tables, to dine with them. So he's instructing them on all of this. And in response to this teaching, one of the guests' remarks, blessed is everyone who will eat Bread in the kingdom of God. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. So, in the Middle East, it was very, very common for these large uh, kind of banquets or dinners to be hosted for traveling rabbis or preachers. People would travel through a small town, and uh, the most prominent local religious person would uh, open their home and they would set a banquet or set a big dinner, and they would invite the most important people from that town to come and, and dine with this traveling itinerant uh, preacher or rabbi. Uh, and, and the reason for this was to begin to investigate the political and theological uh, views of the person that was traveling through. So you have this rabbi coming to town. The local religious leader would say, okay, let's, let's gather all of the people, the important people to our home. Let's have this rabbi over. Let's have this preacher over. And let's begin to ask him some questions to get an idea of where does he stand politically? Where does he stand Theologically. And so in this case, Jesus at the dinner table, he was the traveling rabbi. He was the the person traveling through the town. The local religious leaders, the important people had invited them over. They're sharing this meal. Now Jesus is doing some teaching. And this is when uh, they uh, had all gathered to begin to kind of investigate who is this Jesus guy? Maybe they'd heard about him before, but but they're beginning to ask questions uh, about him politically, about him theologically, and it's in this context that that guest makes the statement about eating the bread in the kingdom of God. And this is one of those times, and this is where there's a lot of depth to this passage, but this is one of those times where the statement was probably really a shrouded question. What he was really investigating was Jesus' view on what had become known as the messianic banquet, all right? So the Messianic Banquet is a historical narrative that had guided Jewish understanding for 700 years at this point. So this idea of the Messianic Banquet had been this historical narrative that had kind of guided the nation of Israel for 700 years. We first see it in Isaiah 25, where uh, Isaiah prophetically envisions what the coming uh, kingdom will look like at the end of time. Verses 6 through 9, it should be up behind me too, says this. This is from Isaiah, 700 years earlier. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of rich food filled with marrow, of well-aged wine strained clear. And he will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all peoples, the sheet that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Then the Lord God will wipe away all tears from all faces, and the disgraced of his people And the disgrace of his people he will take away from all earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on this day, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him so that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So Isaiah prophetically puts forth this image of the kingdom as this banquet, as a dinner, where uh, the best foods and and these rich uh, uh, wines will be served. And the king invites and serves these guests. And it includes Gentiles. It says all peoples at the banquet. And God will bring to death the end of sorrow. And he will establish salvation on this day. And so this is a narrative or an idea that's put forth in the book of Isaiah 700 years earlier than uh, than when Jesus is sitting in this home. But it's over the course of the 700 years between Isaiah and Jesus that many different interpretations or renderings of what this Messianic banquet really would look like begin to pop up. They begin to come forth kind of in uh, the culture, in Jewish culture. Most notably, in the Targum, which is the Aramaic translation of the Hebrew Bible, in the Book of Enoch, which is a, religious, uh, a Jewish religious writing, uh, and from the Qumran community, which wrote the Dead Sea Squirrels, they had a document that's called the Messianic Rule. And all three of these uh, kind of different Cultural narratives on the scripture offered different interpretations or kind of nuanced this idea of what would the Messianic banquet truly look like. They all were trying to get at, their, uh, at the final interpretation, but what's interesting about this is each of them narrows the guest list. Each of those interpretations kind of goes back through, and if you want this material, I could send you this material, the different ways that it's written. Uh, It would take us a long time to look at all this this morning, but what you need to know is each of them begins to really narrow the guest list, concluding that there's no way that Gentiles could truly sit at the table with the Messiah, and that really only the most devout, the most faithful Jews could truly sit at this banquet at the end of time. And everyone else would probably be excluded. These reinterpretations had not only shaped Jewish understanding, but really had provided in a lot of ways the lens by which many Jews would see people around them, would see the world around them. Again, only the most faithful Jews could truly sit at the end of time at the Messianic banquet. And so it's with this foundational understanding, kind of guiding narrative in Jewish culture that this uh, guest brings up the idea of the Messianic banquet. And so Jesus sitting there after he's teaching this, if he were to give the right answer, he would have said, yes, I believe there will be a time at the end of days when the Messiah will host a great banquet and the most pious and upstanding Jews that have kept the law exactly will be counted righteous enough to sit at the table. If if, uh, Jesus wanted to give the answer that everybody at that dinner wanted to hear, expected to hear, that's what he would have said. But instead, Jesus gives us this parable in Luke 14, 16 through 24. Let me read it. Then Jesus said to them, Someone gave a great dinner and invited many. And at the time for dinner, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of land and I must go out to see it. Please accept my regrets. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. I'm going to go try them out. Please accept my regrets. Another said, I have been married and therefore I cannot come. So the slave returned and reported to this master. Then the owner of the house became angry and said to his slave, go out at once into the streets and the lanes of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the slave said, sir, what you ordered has been done, and there is still room. Then the master said to the slave, go out into the roads and lanes and compel the people to come in so that my house may be filled." For I tell you, none of those who were invited will taste my dinner. So this is a considerably different picture of the Messianic banquet than most Jews had grown to know and understand. The host of the banquet, after all the preparations had been made, sends his servant to gather those who had been invited. And in this culture, once you had been invited, you had already kind of pledged to show up. It's like sending your RSVP. But the servant receives these excuses. I bought land. I have to go inspect it. I'm I'm super sorry. I bought oxen. I have to go check them out. I apologize. I just got married, so I'll be pretty busy, if you know what I mean. In the 21st century, our invitation and RSVP culture is incredibly, incredibly relaxed compared to what this was in Jesus' time. We send out invitations, uh, maybe just standing with one another, or maybe through, uh, you know, like an email some of us RSVP, most of us probably don't even RSVP anymore. A lot of us just choose whether or not we're going to go the morning of. Does it fit in my schedule? Did something cooler come up that I'm going to go to? And there's kind of this cultural understanding that, oh yeah, they didn't show up, that's fine. And I don't know if that's the Pacific Northwest, I don't know if that's America, I don't know what that is, but we are incredibly relaxed with invitations and the sense of, uh, of RSVPing to something. In the first century Middle East, the invitation was a great honor. To receive an invitation from the religious, the local religious leader, would have been one of the greatest honors. It was not taken lightly. Now, we read this story, and we see some of these excuses, and they seem honestly kind of reasonable. If I was hosting a dinner and someone said that they couldn't come because they had just got married... I'd say, okay, I've been married before, I kind of know. You you probably won't be able to make it to my dinner, that's okay. But to the first century here, the excuses given would be understood as absolutely ridiculous, completely dishonoring. The first excuse in this culture, no one would have ever purchased a piece of land without first going through and giving it a a thorough inspection. This person seems to have already purchased the land and is now going to go out and inspect the land. The second excuse, the farmer would never have agreed to purchase oxen without first yoking them together, making sure that they pulled at the same pace. The third excuse, the newly married man speaks unbelievably cavalier about his wife. This would have been uh, unbelievably inappropriate and disrespectful. The third person doesn't even offer an apology, just says, I won't be able to make it. What all three excuses have in common is that each would have brought an incredible amount of disgrace and public shame to the host of that dinner. In fact, these were not excuses as much as backhanded attempts to hurt the host of the banquet. When the servant returns with the news, the host becomes angry. Middle East historian, uh, and I'm going to butcher this one too, Ibn al-Tayyib, comments about the excuses and then the host's anger by saying this. Here, the master of the house becomes angry because he knows the excuses were vain and apologies were insults that demonstrated hatred for the host. We read them and they seem kind of commonplace. In this culture, when Jesus was telling this story to these people sitting in the Middle East in the first century, everybody would have heard those things and said, wow, you just don't do that in our culture. So it's at this point in the story when the character of the host comes front and center in a situation where he would have been completely justified to indignantly cancel the dinner, his anger turns to remarkable grace. He sends a servant back out to the streets to gather all the people that if we were honest would have been all the people you don't want at your fancy dinner party. The poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. They were the rejected and despised people of the day. They had no ability to reciprocate in any manner at all. And when they were finally squeezed around the table, the servant saw and reported that there was still room. And the host sends a servant back outside of the city now to the roads and the lanes and compels them to come. Go beyond our city. Go to the Gentiles and compel them to come. He sent a servant to the place where no one would dare go. And when they would question, when the the Gentiles would question whether or not they were really wanted at a Jewish banquet, the servant's task was to compel them to come. Come to my master's banquet. He wants you there. Have you ever been invited to something where you really questioned if you were supposed to be there before? I, uh, when Grace and I, uh, this was probably two or three years into our marriage, we were living in Coeur d'Alene at this point, and uh, let's see, I'll try to give you a date, maybe 2006, 2007. This was like right at the height of the housing market. The economy was unbelievable. And there was this big housing development golf, exclusive golf course that had started uh, kind of on the other side of the lake called Black Rock. How many people remember Black Rock? Okay, some of us. Uh, so this, this guy uh, was this incredible investor. And he built this incredibly exclusive gated golf living community called BlackRock. To give you an idea of uh, what it took to to, uh, to be there, if you bought a home uh, on the golf course, then you paid $40,000 a year to be a member of the golf course, plus, annual, or plus monthly dues. So 40000 up front each year, and then monthly dues that you would pay to play golf. If you did not have a home on the course, you paid yearly or I think you, I'm sorry, you bought in once for $125,000 to pay golf at this place. And then you would pay a monthly, uh, a monthly due just to play golf at this place. So Grace and I are, uh, at this point, I'm working for a nonprofit, I'm working for Young Life in, uh, in Coeur d'Alene. My wife is a school teacher. And we get invited to a dinner uh, that uh, two of our friends... Uh, who were local business owners and had absolutely been crushing it in the business world. They were probably, I don't know what they made, but they were probably kind of getting towards being millionaires at this point. And we were connected through the, this Young Life Connection, and uh, we were invited to this exclusive dinner that they bought at a charity banquet uh, supporting some local nonprofit for uh, m- multiple thousands of dollars. I don't know what it was, but they bought this exclusive dinner at BlackRock and they could invite eight different people. Grace and I somehow got on this list to go. I had no idea what BlackRock was. This was not my world that I lived in. So the guys that won it, they played a, a round of golf first. I was not invited to play golf because I'm a horrendous golfer. Um, I would have been asked to leave immediately. But, uh, but th- then we kind of show up later after this round of golf, and we pull up. Grace and I are driving through this, uh, you know, open the gate, and we drive through, and we're seeing these homes, and we're like, okay, this... This is not what we thought we were going to go to at this point. I mean, we knew it was like a nice dinner, but we had no idea. We pull up, we, you know, somebody valets our car, and, uh, and I get out, and I'm, you know, wearing khakis and like a Quicksilver polo. I'm just <laughs> essentially dressed like I am right now, way underdressed for this. The other guys are in suits, and, uh, and we pull up, and, and still not totally knowing what was going on. Go in, uh, and I have to use the restroom, and I go in, and I kind of open, it's not a restroom, it's like a locker room, walk in, and there, the first thing you see is this full bar in the restroom, like, it it looks like a regular restaurant bar in the locker room, and there's like four dudes, old dudes, wearing towels, (laughs) and one guy not wearing anything, all drinking whiskey at the bar in this locker room, (laughs) and I'm just like, okay, this is a a different world that I am entering (laughs) Right now, and so we finally get to dinner, and, uh, and and we're sitting there, and we're in this exclusive room, and there's eight of us, and uh, and the guy who invited us is sitting next to me, and it's the seven course meal. Each uh, course has this new, incredibly expensive bottle of wine that comes out with it, and then each course has a palate cleanser after it, and with each course, a uh, the executive chef comes out and explains how he made it, and where he got the ingredients, and why he made it, and how it coordinates with the wine, and all this kind of stuff. I'm totally lost at this point. Uh, it was delicious. It uh, wasn't a ton of food, though, I'll let you know that. Uh, I was hungry when I left. Um, but I can remember sitting there, and this was after you know, course four or five or whatever, and I kind of lean over to my friend. My friend's name is Brandon at this point, and, uh And I lean over to Brandon, and, and I just look at him, and I say, man, are we really supposed to be here? like couldn't you have brought a business associate or, or somebody that's kind of worthy of being in this place and brandon looks right at me and just kind of looks in my eyes and he said i invited you you were my guest i invited you you were my guest the people that the host invited to the parable or uh, in the parable They were not banquet material. Some of them weren't even allowed to be with Jews, let alone dine with them. In fact, these are the exact people that the Israelites had come to believe would not even be welcome at the Messianic banquet at the end of time. And yet Jesus, in telling this story, subtly says, I invited them. They are my guests. Frederick Buchner says this, God is the comic shepherd who gets more of a kick out of the one lost sheep once he finds it again than out of the ninety and nine who had the good sense not to go lost in the first place. God is the eccentric host who, when the country club crowd all turned out to have other things more important to do that come live up with him, goes out in the skid rows and the soup kitchens and charity wards and brings home a freak show the man with no legs who sells shoelaces at the corner, the woman and the moth-eaten fur coat who makes her daily round of the garbage cans, the old wino with his pint and a brown paper bag, the pusher, the whore, the village idiot who stands at the blinker light waving his hand as the cars go by, they are all seated at the damask-laid table in the great hall. The candles are lit and the champagne glasses filled. And at the sign of the host the musicians in the gallery strike up amazing grace. The character of the host, the character of Jesus, is one of undeniable grace and unconditional love for all people. Everyone is invited to the banquet. No one is left out. Everyone is worthy. The only people not at the banquet are those who have found excuses not to be. This is the kingdom of God. It's the place where we are all welcome and equal, where Christ is present and all people are satisfied, where sorrow is wiped away and salvation is fully realized and extended. It's a banquet we are invited to intend to attend, not because we deserve it, not because we earned it, not because we're entitled to be a guest, but just as much as the blind and the lame and the crippled and the Gentiles will welcome to the table the Messiah through His grace and love, sees us worthy to be with Him. I've heard it said before, and I don't know who says this, but I've heard it said that the one rule of the kingdom is an invitation. The one rule of the kingdom is an invitation. It's the driving action in this parable, and it will be the framing idea for our entire series as we move forward. It's a year-long invitation to know Jesus but not just to know him, to actually follow Jesus in a meaningful way. For some of us, the invitation will look different. For some, it might be the first invitation you've received. For others, it's an invitation for you to take seriously your journey with Christ. And for some, it might be an invitation to once again begin to follow. Dallas Willard says, We are invited to make a pilgrimage into the heart and life of God. The invitation has long been on public record. My challenge to you, not only today, but as we move through this series, my challenge to you over this course of this year is to not find excuses as to why you can't attend the banquet. The people that should have been there were invited and ultimately gave excuses. They said they had new possessions, the field, They said they had work to do with the oxen. They said their relationships were more important, their wife. The reality is is everything is competing for our attention. We could all find excuses. But if Jesus is who he says he is, if he is the host of the banquet at the end of days, then there is nothing in our lives that could be more important than accepting the invitation and following him there. As we worship through this one last song this morning, Uh, Maybe even later this week, as you're thinking about your life, as you're in group, I want you to ask yourself, are you truly ready to accept this invitation? Would you pray with me?